Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed, is the one, blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a, a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Going to the theatre is different. You buy your ticket, you enter the auditorium, and you see in front of you, you see just something that you want to go beyond. You settle down and you see a curtain. There's a hubbub and a chatter as people find their seats and settle down. There might be some background noise and lights might be uh, being tested and uh, a band, a concert band might be warming up, might be getting the tune. And then the lights dim and then the music stops and the hush descends. And as the lights come down, the curtain goes up and uh, a new reality is before you. There's costumes and characters, there's music and dancing, there's action and props. You're entering a new realm, a new realm that's just beyond the curtain. 
Maybe it's the Lion King. Maybe it's a, a faraway land that Disney have invented. Maybe it's French history of Les Mis. Maybe it's uh, something closer in history like Hamilton. It's all about revelation when you go to the theater. These new characters, these new realms that, that don't exist in your everyday world, but they're just there. They're there beyond the curtain. It's about revelation going to the theater. And that's the name of the book that we're looking at this term. It's a wonderful book with lots of action, with lots of revealing, with a new central character in chapter one. This new central character is the person of Jesus. Chapter one, verse one tells us that God the Father gives to his son Jesus a revelation about the future, a prophecy. Jesus passes that message to one of his messengers, uh, an angelic being, an angel. And that messenger passes it on to John, who then shares it with us. John, this old man on the island of Patmos, just off the coast of modern day Turkey, he was incarcerated. He was in prison and he writes to the suffering church what God's angel reveals to him. And as we see this wonderful, unique, high, lofty description and depiction of this son of man person, through this character, through this unique person, we see the father. To the degree we see Jesus clearly, we see the father and all that he has promised and made known in history. I want us to look very clearly and carefully and quickly at three contrasts that I hope to show you from Revelation chapter one. Three contrasts that are vivid in these precious 20 verses and the difference they should make in our lives. Here's the first one, come but coming. It's in verse seven, come but coming. It's about the second coming of the Lord Jesus, verse seven. He has come once, we remember at Christmas, he was born in a virgin's womb, he lived until um, he was 33 years old, he died for the sins of the world, he emptied the tomb, God the Father raised him from the dead and now he sat at his right hand on high. So there is a human in heaven. And here in verse 7 we are told, not about the past but about the future, verse 7, look. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Here is John. We're going to get used to this as he does throughout the book of Revelation and he's trawling like a fisherman's dragnet from the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's, he's bringing to bear every prophecy and every image and every theme in the first 65 books of the Bible. And he's saying, this is what it all means. Let me show you about history. Let me show you about the plans and purposes of God in his son, Jesus. And so in these verses, in verse seven, two books from the Old Testament are quoted. It's Daniel chapter seven, it's Zechariah chapter 12. And these two passages from the Bible, as they're put together, they're not to put together piecemeal, but they're, they're sculpted and crafted together like a Salvador Dali painting. He uh, takes things that we are used to, that we're familiar with. He takes the skills of a wonderful artist, and then he kind of puts a twist on it, puts a spin on the ball like Shane Warne used to do. And so what do these prophecies say of Jesus, the central character of the book of Revelation, 
and of the first chapter of that book, chapter one. In Daniel, you've got a message that the son of man will come and he'll smite and judge the enemies of God. All the evildoers will be done away with. In Zechariah 12, you've got a slightly different emphasis where God will send the Messiah, Jesus, his son, who came to earth. But he's coming not to judge, but to save and to rescue. And people that have written a lot about the Bible say, well, which one is it? Is it God bringing justice to those evildoers, those enemies of his, or is it God bringing salvation to the nations? And the answer is both. The answer is both. This is the age of the gospel, Revelation chapter 1. Jesus said when he was on the earth the first time, before he ascended back to his father's right hand in authority and power, he says the gospel is to go out to all nations. Church, go and do your work in my strength and with the words of my testimony. Tell the world about me. You've got that privilege and that responsibility. Go to all nations and proclaim the good news, which is about me, said Jesus. But there's also a day coming when Jesus, the Son of Man, will return. And he'll come in his might and in his glory to rescue all who are his and to bring justice on all those who are not. And so these two prophecies from the book of Daniel and Zechariah are brought to bear on this one central character of chapter one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come. He will come on the clouds. And when you see that truth, it should affect your everyday life. If Jesus, who knows all truth, Jesus, who has perfect knowledge of all history. When if he says that he is appointed a day to judge the world, that means you and I don't have to. If you believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus, that should humble us. It should make us less aggressive and less critical. I'm so critical of people. Always people who disagree with me. What do they know? Why do they believe that? I'm right, they're wrong. Maybe you're like that too, or perhaps it's just me. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came once and who will come a second time, that means that we need to be far less critical, far more humble. It enables us to see ourselves as God sees us. It brings us low as we see this new reality that Jesus will return a second time. It makes us less aggressive, makes us less critical, makes us quicker to listen and far less judgmental. We have limited facts. He has all facts and will judge justly and righteously. So it humbles us, makes us very aware of ourselves, makes us aware of our flaws. But all this talk about Jesus coming on the clouds, verse seven, it sounds like a Michael Fish, showing my age here, weather report. Remember the weatherman? Jesus coming with clouds? Notice what verse seven says. It does not say he's coming through the clouds. It's not like incoming, here comes a rocket. Jesus is not coming in that way. He doesn't have to push away the clouds or part them like a like a weatherman is with their hands. It doesn't say he's coming on the clouds like he's riding a chariot or some horse up at the downs at the Derby. It says that Jesus, when he returns a second time, will bring the clouds. They're coming with him. So what we're talking about here is not the weather. This is not a meteorological statement. It's not moisture in the atmosphere hovering over a mountain or a hill. This is John seeing the Lord Jesus in his glory. 
This is Jesus returning in his Shekinah glory, the glory that we catch glimpses of through the Old Testament and into the New when God's glory in his Son breaks out. This is God returning as we see him revealed in chapter 1 of Revelation, bringing the presence of God back to, to mend every wrong, to judge every wrong, to restore righteousness, to bring harmony so the lion will lay down with the lamb, so that the trees of the field will clap their hands, as it says in Psalm 96. This is God's Son returning, not in his humanness, but in his human divinity, in his glory to the max that we see on the Mount of Transfiguration, that every eye will see him, every tongue will confess his loving rule and lordship and cosmic kingship when he returns with the clouds. So let me ask you bluntly, do you believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? He won't come as saviour. He will return as judge and every eye will see him. Do you believe in that truth? From verse seven, he's come, but he's coming. He can come at any moment. I mean, when you go to a theatre, you know when you're going, you know what's going to happen. You know the curtain's going to be pulled back. And the book of Revelation describes the reality of the heavenly realms as, as just there. It's not beyond Pluto, millions of light years away. Jesus can rend the heavens and come down at any moment. So do you believe in a literal, physical, historical, glorious return of Jesus Christ? It should affect your everyday life if you do. You should live as if Jesus were to return today, and so should I. So it's holiness it's purity. It's wanting to tell our friends about Jesus, not as an optional extra, but as a privilege in the power of his son, dependent upon his spirit. Do you believe in that? We could go home now and hopefully we've had our fill, but we're at home so we can continue. Here are two more things that I want to show you. He's come, but he's coming. He's returning. Here's the second one. Stunned, but alive. Here's the second contrast we see. Stunned, but alive. Look at uh, this image that God gives to his son Jesus, who he relays to an angel, who he gives to John, who's incarcerated in Patmos. What a sight. It's unbelievable. It must have been something for John. I think I only, the penny dropped for me this week on this. Here is John who spoke with his friend Jesus when he was on earth, the divine son of God in his humanity and divinity. Here is John who was restored by Jesus in John 21 over the fiery coals of a fishy barbecue. That same Jesus is now revealed to John in all his glorious majesty. Jesus 2.0. Jesus without restraint. Jesus with pure glory. Jesus in 1080p high definition. And how does John respond when he sees him? Verse 12 to 16, it's like, it's like looking in the sun. It blinds you. It will ruin your sight for all of your life when you stare at the sun. It's, it's John listening to the sound of all the oceans as Jesus speaks, the sound of many waters. I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, for you and me to project Jesus, the Jesus of our comfort that we can handle, the Jesus of our understanding, the Jesus of our childhood, with the great flowing locks from Pantene, 
floating above the ground, wearing white and a blue sash around his waist. But this is the real Jesus. This is the real Jesus who can look after himself in any neighborhood, in any context. This is Jesus who doesn't need defending. This is Jesus. When you and I see him and sense him, it's as if we are dead. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, when I saw him, when I heard his voice, I fell at his feet as though dead. The key phrase is as though. John didn't die, but it's as though he was dead. He felt as if he was dying. That is so significant. Of all the descriptions of Jesus in the Old Testament that, that John will bring through to the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah, there's no place in the Bible, I think, that makes such a high claim on the divinity of Jesus as does Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 16. His face was shining like the sun in all its brilliance, the warmth we feel from the sun even today, light years away from that huge mass around which we orbit. This reveals to us something that we know in our hearts. When we come into the presence of Jesus, we should respond just as John did, but we're so slow to do it. In the Old Testament, it says repeatedly, no one can see the face of God and live. It's death to see the face of God. So on one hand, we see the brilliance of Jesus. We hear the, the might of his voice. We see the fatal brilliance of God in his son. And yet, and yet John isn't killed. Jesus himself, verse 17, touches him and says these precious words, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now we need to do some work on this because there is a, a great contrast that we come face to face with in Revelation chapter 1. In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, there is a place where the prophet Daniel uh, has a very similar revelation of God's glory that we see in Revelation chapter 1. It actually looks like this. Daniel falls to his face and yet he's touched by an angel. An angel comes and ministers to to Daniel, explains what he sees and brings him comfort. He says very similar words, do not be afraid. And an angel tells more than that. I mean, the Bible says clearly that God himself couldn't do this at that stage of history. That would be fatal. No one can see God's face and live. And yet here in Revelation chapter one, we have this apparently counterintuitive claim that God's son, without any human restraint, can touch John, and yet John lives. It's Jesus who touches, not an angel. It's Jesus who comforts, not an angel. And John is stunned, but he's alive. We need to do some work. Let's go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, right at the very beginning of the Bible, we were told that you and I, the whole of humanity, were built with a purpose to enjoy and relate to our maker and creator, to enjoy and relate to God. That's what we're taught in Eden, that every love that I and you have ever looked for in any relationship will only be found in him. Uh, every assurance of our significance that we look for in our work and in life pursuits will be found only in him. 
every aspect of beauty that we see in the created world will only be found in him so we're made for him to know him and to enjoy him forever psalm 16 says in his face a fullness of joy so everything we've wanted everything we know is true is found wholly true in the face and purpose of our father god he made us he's the alpha and omega he's the beginning and the end he's the reason of existence and we're made to enjoy him there's no substitute for it that's genesis chapter 2 by the time we scroll forward and get to isaiah 6 there's another revelation of the glory and might and majesty of god and the prophet isaiah hits the ground he's undone by the sense of the weightiness that's what the word glory means the weightiness and glory of God he senses and sees just just the end of the robe of the glory of God in his temple and he's undone it's as if he's dead just like John sees in Revelation chapter one and you kind of think wait a minute hang on the person we're made for God the thing we're made for is also the thing that needs to be most feared how does that work how can God be so loving to make us and uh, make us so that we're fit for purpose for him to know him and to enjoy him forever and yet when we come close to him no one can see god and live how does that work what's the problem what's the paradox explain the conundrum and the answer is sin this small word with such reverberation and power throughout the bible and throughout history we're God's rule breakers and we're our rule makers, says the Bible. We want and we're made to look at his face, but we can't look at his face. And so by the time we reach Revelation chapter one at the end of the Bible, having looked at the beginning and in the middle, what has happened? In Daniel chapter 10, when the Lord appears to his prophet, he hits the ground as if he's dead and the angel has to touch him. But now... Jesus touches John in Revelation chapter one. How can that be? Because Jesus has dealt with the sin problem. The judge of all the earth who will appear at the end of time. Jesus also became incarnate. He took on flesh and he entered into history in the middle of time. He took the judgment that we deserve upon himself. And so that now there's no more shame. There's no more distance between God and us because God has dealt with the problem. He sent Jesus, his son, on a rescue mission to deal with our sin, to take his just wrath upon himself so that we, we might be restored in relationship to him. He took our judgment upon himself. That's the answer to this huge gulf of sin, our rebellion, us turning our back on God for whom we're made, for whom is our love and enjoyment and longing for beauty will be satisfied so that now we can be restored to him. What does John say? Don't be afraid. I was dead, says uh, Jesus. Don't be afraid. I have the keys to death and Hades. What's Jesus saying? John, I died for you. I went to hell for you. I was judged for you. So now you can have the touch that you long for and that you're made for. Every Christian, you can be comforted by me. You can live in my presence 
And bit by bit, whilst you're here on earth, even in this world, you can get more and more used to the joy that is found only in knowing Jesus. It's pretty significant. But there's one more thing too. One more contrast. Suffering, but brilliant. Suffering, but brilliant. That's in verse 13. You might forget the words of Revelation, I do. But the way John writes, you won't forget the images. In uh, Revelation chapter 1, there's this image of lampstands. You can see one over my shoulder that I've got here in our front room. Every church is to act as a, as a lampstand, as a light in a dark world. That's what we're called to do at Emmanuel. We're to be God's light in our community of Epsom and Yule and Stoneley and wherever else we live. It's a great illustration of the importance of getting out into a lost world and showing the hope for the world that is Jesus Christ in the tremendous suffering in which we find ourselves. As John wrote this book, He's an old man. He's seen a lot of life. He knows the reality is suffering. And he's on this island called Patmos off the coast of Turkey that you could go and see today. But the churches to which he's writing that we'll meet in the next few weeks, they are experiencing and will experience tremendous suffering. Some Christians by now or will be thrown to the lions on the floor of the Colosseum. Some Christians, just for the pleasure of the Roman army, will be crucified like their Lord. And their bodies on crucifixes will line the roads leading in and out of Rome, just to show the might of the Roman military machine. And where's Jesus in the midst of all these battered and bloodied and suffering Christians? And where is he in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of a global pandemic as well? He's in verse 13. He is where he always is, King Jesus, cosmic King Jesus. He's in the middle of the lampstands. He's in the middle of his churches. And he's walking. He's walking as if he's in a furnace. This word furnace is of the primary way that the Bible reveals and demonstrates and describes suffering. I can't get over the fact that Daniel 3 is so parallel to what we read in Revelation chapter 1. The more I've read about it, you might remember it for when you went to Sunday school as a child. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? They were believers who refused to bow to the authority of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. They refused to... Uh, to stop worshipping Jesus and refuse to bow. And Jesus says, if you don't, or, or, or Nebuchadnezzar says, if you refuse to bow, then you will burn. And in Daniel 3, the huge furnace is, uh, is built, it's constructed, it's so strong that even the people that are building it will die. And uh, the king comes to see the fate of these three marvellous people to whom God gave strength to stand in the furnace of suffering, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as he came and looked into the fire, maybe he was expecting to see a hand outstretched. He didn't see three people. He saw a fourth. And the fourth is someone who looked like a son of man, someone along with the three others, with the suffering church, who was not consumed like Isaiah 43 said through the fire in which you're walking. He saw four people. 
This mysterious figure in Daniel 3 is the Lord Jesus with his people. Do you know what that means? Jesus says in Revelation 1, I have the key to death and Hades. I will be with you in every suffering, every persecution, every loss, every physical ailment, every fear, every anxious thought. I will be with you. How do we know? Because Jesus went through the ultimate furnace. He went through the ultimate fire. And God brought his son through. He raised him from the dead. As Jesus paid for the sins of a lost world on the cross. As he dealt with the great sin problem. That gets in the way of a loving relationship. With the one who made us and for whom we made. He faced God's ultimate fierce judgment. And because he faced the ultimate judgment. Because he went through the ultimate furnace. The ultimate storm. That means, and he promises to be with his church, the lampstands, you and me if we're Christians, through every penultimate furnace, through every smaller furnace, God will be with us. He's literally walking with us in the furnace. And every furnace, every suffering, every tear that is shed has the potential to make us more brilliant, to make us more like Jesus. It has the potential to make our hearts softer so that we're more like him and less like our old selves less bitter less angry more hope-filled more hopeful kinder people more self-controlled people more pure and holy people so maybe you can say this if you know something of that reality i can face this for you in the week to come i can face this for you jesus because it is absolutely nothing it's real but it's nothing compared to what you face for me on the cross. It's the message of Revelation 1, I believe.